Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of the Prep to Pro NBA Draft Podcast. My name is Ben Pfeiffer, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Max Carlin. Max, how's it going? Going all right. How are you, Ben? I'm doing well, uh, holding up out there. And we have another special guest on this week's episode, or I guess the second episode of this week, and that is Mitch Leibanoff of The Stepian. Mitch, how's it going? Doing well. How are you guys doing? All right, thanks for coming on. And so in this episode, we are going to we've talked about scouting philosophy before, really our philosophies regarding this draft. We did that in episode one and we've kind of done that throughout. But in this episode, we're going to go through kind of a tutorial episode of how we scout players, because I guess this is kind of a niche thing, scouting NBA draft prospects. We kind of we wanted to break it down, get into get into how we scout, how we watch film, how we go through our process and try to share some some insight of how we do things. And I guess the first place to start is identifying who a prospect is. So, I mean, because there's hundreds of college basketball players and even the ones that at face value might look good might not be. So, Max, what's your process look like for really going about evaluating prospects? Before we go any further, the Prep to Pro MBA Draft Podcast is sponsored by LinkedIn Jobs. The perfect hire can have an impact on your business for years to come. So when you need to find that person to help grow your business, LinkedIn Jobs will match the right talent with your open role fast. Yeah, so I think, I mean, we, to an extent, all start uh, before college. So that's watching guys in high school, AAU, FIBA, what have you. Um and I think for finding those guys, it's important to rely upon people who are more focused on on those competition levels. So, I mean, we had earlier in the week, we had Ross Homan on, and I think Ross is as good as it gets in terms of knowledge of high school basketball. So it, it'll be something as simple as, to an extent, just relying on, on honestly, recruiting service, uh, like consensus, it, it will identify a lot of big guys for you. But um relying on, on the people who, who really know the game, who you trust, uh, is essential. So, I mean, a, a concrete example would be like Isaac Okoro last year was not um, not super highly recruited. He, I think he was barely a top 40 guy for um, for most of the, the main recruiting services, yet uh, among the draft Twitter community was, was pretty, I think, a near consensus top 10 guy um, for many, even top five. Uh, and you only, I think you only get that information by, by talking with people who are just watching 
every Peach Jam game or something like that, or every FIBA game. So they really have a good understanding of um, of a specific landscape. And then you can you once you know once you have opinions on these guys before college, then you have this you you have your own database of of people to be looking at. Um, and that changes then once you're finding guys in college. And for me, I usually go, uh, I, I will, st- I'll start with stats often to find guys. So I'll do uh, sports reference and Bart Torvik, um, queries and just, uh, input various statistical thresholds and find guys. Uh, and then obviously the most simple way to find guys is simply just by watching games, guys will pop and then you'll go and, and check and see if they have interesting statistical profiles and then watch more and more games. Uh, and I'd say that's all, that's probably how I find the majority of new people to me. Um, it would be just by a guy popping in a game, uh, but otherwise, it's it's about building up that that database of information before the college level, and then also actively seeking guys out on these stat services. How about you guys? I mean, yeah, it's all about just kind of watching games and being diligent, looking at statistics. I mean, you talked about statistical profile, so I'll touch on that a little more when we talk about stats. We're not really talking about the general triple slash of points, rebounds, and and assists. It goes quite a bit deeper than that. And even when we are looking at those stats, we like to look at per uh, per 36 minutes or per 100 numbers just to kind of get a standardized distribution because there are lots of guys who make an impact in a small in a small sample and then there are guys who there are guys who maybe make less of an impact but play more minutes and that's a way to kind of standardize that production and just some just some examples of some statistical indicators there it obviously varies by position and watching for role and context is important and we'll talk more about that later but just some numbers i'd say the the big ones are stocks uh steal percentage and block percentage really is those are kind of indicators that most stars hit and just just a simple query is if you pull up uh sports reference or bartorvik or and you just hit and you just go two steal two block and you look at the guys who hit that threshold and the guys who don't i mean it's it's very clear that th- the majority of the good nba players who turned out met that threshold and that's when they look at there are other ones like uh, free throw percentage is hugely important um most most directly for identifying shooting projection and as as a guy who's shooting uh a low percentage from three and a high percentage from the the free throw line is going to be more likely to shoot than the inverse. And that can also be an identifier of things like touch or just general goodness in general. There's things like assist to turnover ratio, um, just just like as a concrete way to identify decision-making, although as we'll talk about, that that goes much deeper than than one single number. So yeah, what are some of the statistics we look at? Um, and yeah, those are the things that we look at when we're trying to identify which prospect is interesting to consider. I mean, Mitch, does your does your process differ from that at all, or or do you think that's a relatively standard way of going about finding guys? Yeah, I would say that's relatively standard. And to to zoom out a little bit, like for I know for um many professional scouts, you have to trust your network for you know guys that you meet on the road and assisting coaches for various teams and so on and so forth. So when you said, you know, really listening to guys who focus on international basketball or focus on high school basketball, once you're able to trust certain voices, like for those of us who kind of just do it, you know, 
whether for a website or a scouting service, what have you, once you find guys that you can trust, you know, they pick out certain guys, you know, in their focus of whether it's college, high school, international, et cetera, you begin to add those names to your own list or your own database if you haven't gotten to those guys yet. So it's about cultivating the right voices that you trust to listen to. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we can, now I feel like it's, it would be a natural point to either get into what we value in scouting or how we, um, how we like keep uh, gather information on people. It, it, do you guys have a preference on, on which we touch on first? I think we should probably start on just like the gathering information, note taking, just to kind of get the logistical stuff out of the way. So I'll say like I don't know, Max or Mitch or Mitch or Max. How do you guys go about note taking while you're watching games, keeping this information, organizing it? Yeah, I mean, Mitch, do you want to start with this since you wrote, um, a, a, you you released a bit of an outline of of how you go about this on your um on the Stepian? Sure. Um, my my note taking kind of goes in several phases. Um like one of the first things I try to do is once I identify a guy that I want to watch, I watch multiple games of his before digging into a lot of the minutia and a lot of like the individual, you know, whether it's clipping plays or whether it's like tagging something to dive in deeper because there's so many things that kind of, you know, ebb and flow throughout a game that you want to see in a game in its entirety. Cause if you're, whether you're watching on TV or whether you're in person, you can't just like pause it in those instances and dive into the thing you want to watch. You have to make note of it and then go back because something stood out to you. So doing three to five um, viewings of a guy and then going into the deeper stuff, you know, because, you know, writing a question or two during a game and then continuing on, like that's really like, the starting point for me mm-hmm. yeah and yeah I, i'm i mean if you if you are familiar with my twitter page which if you're listening to this i feel like you probably are um i mean for me i'm just always collecting video because uh, i think like wor- words are you know can be descriptive and helpful but there's nothing quite like seeing a guy actually play and i don't have full synergy access so i i don't have the luxury of pulling up pick and roll possessions or something like that so i just kind of have to gather things whenever i can and then honestly the reason that i spam twitter with clips is so that i can find them later there's not there's not really a better place for for me to store them um so i it might seem a little weird that i'm posting something that's not necessarily all that interesting but it's really just helpful for me um but yeah i mean i think that that i i tend to dive directly into note-taking um, and I don't have like a really formulaic approach to it. That's why I think it's, um, Mitch's approach is interesting. Take a look at his, at his piece in the step if you haven't, but Mitch, do you have these like specialized outlines for every single type of prospect? I know the one that you, you put up on the step was for a, a lead ball handler specifically, I think in pick and roll situations. Um, not in any, uh, I'll say formal outline like that I posted. I have a bunch of stuff that I've handwritten over the years that are you know sloppy and kind of catered to the language and verbiage that i use um Mm -hmm. so i will i'm kind of planning on putting up a few more in the future that are a little more you know 
formal and a little more outline based like the lead ball handler one. But for me, like I, I work better in expand, you know, the outline gets bigger, the more or the deeper that you dive into a particular aspect of, of a prospect's game. And it just creates so many like additional questions to look for or additional points of observation that when you're just watching, you know, the first couple times through, you know, you're not really focusing on or looking at, but like that's a way to pick up stuff that might not come up in a box score or might not come up in the, you know, even the deeper numbers for, you know, assist percentage, steal percentage, et cetera. Like there are various things that those types of outlines and asking those kinds of questions can help you, you know, find that information in the film when you're clipping or watching in full. Yeah. I mean, I find it to be a fascinating approach largely because it's very different from what I do. Um, And I think it's really, it makes a lot of sense in the context of you're a regional scout for a team and you do need, you're synthesizing information for someone above you who is going to need to take in um, the perspectives of a lot of different people. So like the example I think you mentioned in your piece was you have a West Coast guy who swears on, swears uh, Isaiah Stewart is superior to Vernon Carey and uh, Nico Mannion to Cole Anthony. Uh, but there's no way to really standardize that and know you know, wh- which guy is worth trusting. So in that sense, I think that that approach makes a lot of sense. But for me, I mean, I, I'm not synthesizing the information for someone above me. I'm just kind of working with it in my brain. And, and for, for me, it doesn't, it doesn't feel useful to have such a standardized approach when I think that it's being, being successful even in a given role is not something that's standardized. So how do you, how do you I guess, comp- combat the problem of um, there are a lot more than – it's not just one way to be successful, even as a lead ball handler who is playing the majority of his pos- possessions out of pick and roll. Like there are a lot of ways to do that successfully. Right. Like, so it's more of, it's kind of just supposed to be a framework rather than like a checklist of if one guy does this, but the other guy doesn't, then that guy's better. It's more of like being able to see if a guy operates a certain way and if he's effective at it versus another guy, because yeah, various systems work differently. A guy's response, a player's responsibilities are different team to team. So one guy could be a heavy, you know, high pick and roll player. I mean, and we could talk about this in terms of NBA guys as well. Like a certain guy like James Harden is going to have an insane amount of high pick and roll scenarios or isolation possessions. Whereas, you know, another lead guard, you know, Steph, Steph Curry might not have those same types of possessions. So obviously like it defers system to system and guy to guy, but that's where a checklist or a checklist, an outline like that can help where once you have to start, you know, determining which prospects you like more, like you can, it's a guide to diving into like, what is this guy not doing in this scenario, but this guy is, or, so on and so forth. Like it's trying to get deeper into those little little actions or little things to kind of determine who's doing the the little things more rather than, you know, doing it at the possession by possession 
number scenario that makes sense i think all of us would be in agreement that watching full games is important like mitch you you mentioned that and i know max you feel that way too and just getting a sense of the little things and how a guy reacts to certain in-game situations that you can't get from scouting highlights or even synergy clips i know there's some in the community who rely on like watching all of the synergy pick and roll ball handler possessions to to form opinions of players and well and while that can be useful in 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 context you really need that that full game to see how a guy is responding and how a guy is adapting throughout the game so i, I wanted to pose a question how many games do you guys really take to i would say one get a grasp of a prospect and two like feel you can understand them i mean is there a number i feel like this is a question that comes up a lot people asking how many games do of a prospect we watch before we form an opinion or have a, a strong stance on them. So either of you. Yeah, I mean, I think Mitch mentioned the three to five games. I, I apologize if I'm, if I'm getting this wrong, but three to five games before you even get into the minutia of a guy's game. And um, I don't know, I, in my, pro- I see the, the, argument for that in my process that's not really what i tend to do i think that you and it varies a lot with prospects prospect to prospect and sometimes you won't you won't get a grasp of a certain aspect of a guy's game i feel like i i have a broad strokes understanding of a guy usually after one or two games um but then to i mean to get into the minutiae you (laughs) watch a lot um so i don't know like for for top top guys uh i don't know like anthony edwards i think i went through it i've watched at least 15 of them from this year uh so quite a few i mean like with someone like james wiseman or last year darius garland who didn't play very much you go and you watch everything that they did and you probably watch it twice um but i mean for other top guys i i would definitely try to get up to maybe two-thirds of their games because you're watching them throughout the year and they're they're entertaining matchups anyways, often. Um, so for me, the top guys, I'm going to be watching the majority of their games. Lower down, l- like late first, second round type guys, probably three to five would be my guess. Um, but no no set number. I mean, sometimes I, I feel like I have a handle on a guy and sometimes I feel like I don't after X number of games. Yeah, I mean, I feel... Well, I'll answer the question a different way. I think it goes back to the previous points we were talking about before with the statistical indicators where once you decide to start watching a guy, you've kind of formed an opinion about a player in some capacity because a, you know one or two or more certain statistics will stand out to you and then you kind of have and then you kind of start watching to answer for why. Um, our, our NBA Twitter friend, Josh Earl kind of taught me this back in the day about answering for why. So like, if you find certain statistics that stand out or, you know, you need to dive into a little bit more of the prospect, like it's the opinion starts there on some degree. And then you start watching film on a guy and kind of answering the questions in which, you know, you started to formulate in your head about why this particular prospect stood out in the first place. Yeah, I think yeah. that's a really good point because it's not like 
if a guy has a, a high steal rate, you're not going to be watch the games and then not understand why he has a high steal rate. Why he has a high steal rate might, may not be a positive thing. He may be someone who takes a lot of gambles. It just may be a system that produces a lot of steals, but you're going to develop some sort of explanation for it. You're not like the numbers will tell you what is happening. They won't tell you why it's happening and figuring out the why is, I mean, it's the whole point of this. A guy like, I don't know, um, uh, Mason Jones, who is just this absolutely incredible finisher um, and this like really efficient score, despite being a pretty bad athlete. Like that's the thing you wouldn't know until watching on tape. So it's like how how is Mason Jones um, this good of a finisher despite his athletic concerns? And that's still something that kind of confuses me, and I know confuses a lot of people. So that's just important finding context. And, and the guy, uh, uh, Jamias Ramsey, Texas Tech. I mean, he, his steal percent is consistently good despite showing not very good defensive awareness so it's important to use film to contextualize those numbers and vice versa you know it's not one thing is more important than the other you need both components and another reason to really watch more games is to see how a player kind of progresses over the season so we'll talk about we've talked about this quite a bit on the pod is talking about development curves and uh, a guy talks about last week uh Keontae Johnson uh Florida wing he is playing quite a bit better at the end of the season. He's really made progress from the beginning. And that's something you can only track by watching full games early and watching and tracking his games as the season goes. So that's another valuable thing to look for that you're not going to get um, watching highlights or clips or, or, or anything else. Yeah. I mean, to that point, that's another downfall of synergy possessions, for example, like, Isaac Okoro, I think there was a point in the season where his on-ball usage kind of spiked a bit, uh, and they they realized that he was a pretty good option to go to in isolation in the post, even as a pick and roll ball handler sometime and sometimes. And you don't, um, I don't think you get that if you're just watching chopped up possessions. You, I think you really need to get the feel of how a game is going, uh, and the only way to do that is is watching full games. Um, should we get? into what specifically to look for with different archetypes uh because i think that's a really interesting question especially in the context of doing stat querying to find guys because you're not looking for the same statistical indicators in an in an initiator as you are in a big man or in a wing shooter um so I, I think that's a, a pretty compelling topic. Unless there's is there anything else that, that either of you wanted to add on note taking or, or prospect discovery before we get into that? Nope. Nope. Cool. Um so I guess I mean I think initiators are probably a natural place to start since they're probably the most important thing that you're shooting for in the draft. Um, at least for me, it's definitely been hard to balance it sometimes like fetishizing decision-making versus just finding guys who aren't necessarily brilliant, like intellectual guys, but, um, really do manage to drive offense anyway. Um, but I, I think that that's striking that balance is, is, um, something that's really important because you're not just talking about a guy who can make decisions you're taught you, you need a guy who can you know pressure a defense as well uh so what is it that you guys look for i mean i i do think that like more so than any other archetype initiator is one where you kind of do have a checklist where a guy does need an ability to penetrate into the defense whether that's leveraging a pull-up uh an elite handle 
or simply elite first step. Um, and you need to be, you need at least some level of competence in terms of reading a defense and making decisions uh, because, you know, like Zach Levine can get into the defense like as well as anyone in the entire NBA, but he's so uh, incompetent as a decision maker that he can't really drive team offense. Um, so I, I think that there is more of a checklist for this. Would you guys, I mean, uh, agree with that or do you do you disagree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely that. And the first, I think the first thing I look for that isn't they have mentioned is is just size because initiators nowadays come in all sizes. You still have the the smaller, more traditional initiators like guys like Trey Young, Steph Curry, Damian Lillard. But then this is this is the era of the mega wing initiator, the the Giannis, LeBron, Luca, um, even Zion now. So it's important to parse for that because basically as as size goes down, you have to be really much more skilled or intelligent to really be worth a shot in the NBA the way things are going. So uh, one of the most important things you're going to look for in an initiator is just a lethal pull-up jumper because just looking at all of the initiators in the NBA now, so many of them will be lethal pull-up shooters. That's just one of the most valuable shots in the NBA to sort of bend defenses to that shot and really create advantage for other guys. But, I mean, somebody like Marcus Howard is – a dynamite pull-up shooter, but you're not really seeing anybody drafting him or projecting him highly because of how small he is and how difficult it is to succeed at his size. And I would say the the next conjunction point there is first step, like you mentioned. Being able to get into the lane is probably more important than being able to finish there. I'm not sure if you're use that. Just being able to get into the lane with an elite first step or an elite handle and bend the defense and force help rotations and get easy shots for defenders. So I think size thing you look for as if you find an exceptionally skilled guy with a ton, with a ton of size, and there aren't too many of those in this draft. There's quite a few of those guys in the 2021 draft that we talked about on Monday, guys like Cade Cunningham, BJ Boston, like massive, these massive initiator types who are super skilled handlers or have legitimate first steps or wizard passers. Um, then those are guys you instantly want to take note of. So and looking at these skills in conjunction with size and first step pull-up shooting are probably like the two biggest ones, I'd say, aside from general decision-making field. Yeah, I think the size point is interesting. Not that like I, – I don't think that people – the players should be disqualified for size. I think that when watching someone who's – a small traditional size initiator, or I mean, even smaller than usual, because I don't even, I don't get particularly concerned in the case of guys who are six, two, six, three, um, unless it's like a Nico Mannion type where the, where his frame is really bad and, and he's clearly inhibited in his ability to get to and, and um, finish at the rim and likely will uh, struggle on defense um, in part due to his frame. But it's just important to remember when evaluating guys who are small initiators that the bar is so high on these skills that you have to be a pretty sensational passer and you have to be able to overcome things like, like vision that is, um, that is, uh, inhibited by size because it's simply when you are six, seven, it is easier to see over the defense. Um, you, and you have to, you have to overcome, uh, more consistent contests on your pull-up and stuff like that and and finishing on the interior um so i think it's just important to remember that when you're talking about guys that are tiny they just have to be absolutely sensational they have to be i mean they don't have to be trey young but it's that sort of idea where you have to be 
outlier skilled at uh, finishing on the interior, outlier uh, good with the pull up. You know, really preternatural vision, and you you just have to be special at that size because it's just it's not going to get any easier overcoming being small. Um, and the point that you, that you mentioned that's also really interesting to me is is the idea that it's uh, more important to be able to get to the rim than finish there. And I agree to an extent in that finding guys who can get to the rim is very important, but it's also important not to overvalue guys who can just get to the rim. Speaking as someone who had Xavier Johnson as a top 20 guy coming into the year, <laughs> because um, just getting to the rim is not all that valuable if you can't capitalize on it, which was the case with Xavier Johnson. And I think that in my analysis of John Morant last year, I laid out like three, like a three item checklist for an initiator that you have to be able to get into the defense. You have to be able to actually score once you're there and you have to be able to make the decisions to capitalize on the, on the creases that you create in a defense. Um, and uh, with someone like Xavier Johnson, you have to, not just value hitting one of those benchmarks, but he, he, you have to hit all three. Um, yeah, that, that was, that was fairly long winded, but, uh, I, I agree with you, with your point that getting into the defense is very, very important, but I don't want, I think that people shouldn't get too caught up in just one prong of what I consider to be the three essential elements to be a quality initiator. Yeah, and I just I, I want to add that there's something also to be said for not just um, you know an elite first stepper athleticism as we've seen a number of guards over the years who you know in that six we'll say six two to six four range are elite athletes but not elite decision makers or elite passers even if they have you know the tools that you'd want um, where if a guy can make up for it with elite handles and elite strength that if he's a step slower, like there are, I mean, not to say that, you know, guys like Chris Paul or Kyle Lowry aren't elite at a number of things, but they're, they get to where they want on the court because they can't be bumped off the ball or bumped off their spot. They get to wherever they want, whenever they want. And I mean, obviously Chris, is incredibly quick, but like he's not he he was never a a John Wall or Derrick Rose or Russell Westbrook kind of burner who you had to worry about his first step explosiveness and getting to the basket because he was going to get to wherever he wanted regardless. Like yeah, you know, because of that handle proficiency and being able to manipulate, like you said, Ben, a, a defensive rotation or a defensive reaction by getting to where he was trying to go that because of his size and because like you couldn't kind of keep him from where he was going because he was going to be stronger than you because of his body type. Like that also is something that if you are a bit smaller, or a bit shorter, if you can still like out muscle guys or, you know, not be prevented from getting to where you want to go, then that also could be something that, you know, you could find the guy who otherwise wouldn't have, would have been discounted because of, you know, a lack of elite length or athleticism for the position. Yeah, that's kind of my concept with my uh, somewhat crude initiator checklist is that it's not it's not about process really at all. It's just about can you, can you get into the defense? Can you 
actually threaten to score? Can you like back up your your threat um, with scoring ability, and then can you capitalize it in a t- capitalize on it in a team sense? Because not everyone is going to accomplish that in the same way, and I think it's. I mean, it's equally valid to get there by virtue of a deceptive handle as it is um, an explosive first step. Uh, and, uh, and this kind of, this is something that I wanted to talk about a bit earlier, but I think that it's relevant now, um, is how you guys weigh in-person uh, scouting versus versus watching film. Because I, I, for the most part, think that, I, I mean, I strongly prefer uh, just watching video because you can pause, rewind, all that sort of thing. But one aspect that I do think is especially valuable in person um, is with initiators. It can be easier to see things like pace, like how they generate pace, um, and definitely how they're uh, like looking around the court and manip- manipulating defense with their eyes. Um, so, I mean, I guess specifically in the case of initiators, it can be how you answer this if you want, but. But just generally, how do you guys feel about the value of in-person scouting versus film? Ben, you want to go first? I don't really have much to say on this. I mean, I kind of, I'm pretty much generally in agreement with Max is that film is just one more convenient than in-person scouting, and two, it's easier to rewind and and make and make notes and take note of things and. I wanted to make a quick point. Um, tracking back one more, one step is that just like when we talk about initiators, we're talking about at the top of the draft looking for guys who can really change the direction of a franchise and be the best player, the the driving offensive engine of a championship winning offense, and that's an incredibly high bar, like Max said. So, like with the case of Xavier Johnson, I mean, you have to be so incredibly good at all of these things if you're going to be this type of player in the NBA. And there are so few of these guys. I mean, I'd say there's more than there has been, but there's so few of these guys who can really drive an offense at the level you need to, to win championships. And that's not even considering defense. I mean, another issue with the small guys is that generally they're going to bleed value on defense. I mean, there are very few like legitimate point guard size and initiators who are good defenders. I mean, you have like your Chris Pauls and your Kyle Lowry's, but those guys are outliers. So you have to so you have to be so good on offense that you make up for the value you're going to bleed on defense at that that size. So yeah, that's my kind of tangent. So yeah, Mitch, why don't you go back to the question that Max asked? Well, I'm going to piggyback on what you just said and then answer the question because when you start going down the checklist a little bit of or checklist or the list of guys who are quote unquote smaller lead guards on championship teams, once you add Fred VanVleet to that list now once you add um i just had another name and i lost it for a second but i mean if you go and even look at i'm sure matthew delvadova even though he's a backup you know if you look at how strong he probably is there's something to be said for these guys all being you know super strong for their size and so if you're like if you're as skilled as trey young and steph and you're this you know, you have a, a more slender frame, like you can get away with stuff because you're that skilled, even at that size. Whereas these other guys, like for them to be important cogs, like, I mean, George Hill also like is super strong, but he's also a little bit longer for his size. But some of these guys, if you, you know, come up with a list, which Ben Rubin was great at in all of his pieces over the step being coming up with a list of these kind of players, 
strength seems to be, you know, a common, you know, through line between all these guys who play the point of attack or are lead guards or lead initiators for teams when they're not, you know, either super tall for the position or super athletic for the position. Yeah, I mean, strength, I think, in general is just wildly underrated. Um, I guess if if we don't want to if we don't want to get into the in person versus film question right now, cool. sorry, I can I can hop on that. Quickly. Oh yeah, I have a, a quicker response. There are important things to take note of um, when you're scouting in person. You know, watching guys during warm ups for one, like certain because certain guys will be working on stuff in warm ups that they'll then not be you know put in a situation to show in a game. Um, you'll see if guys are, are, you know, working on certain things because of an injury that, you know, might not be either talked about, uh, publicly or something that they're trying to keep a little more, you know, quiet or whatnot. And then you'll see if guys are kind of like wasting their time during warmups or who's taking it seriously and who's not like, who's screwing around who's like talking to other teammates like who's just sitting on the side those kind of things are just important to keep note of when you're scouting in person and then you kind of touched on it with like watching initiators it's it's easier to see um as action is going on it's easier to see like where a guy is looking if you're in person versus you know the kind of one consistent angle on TV, like you can kind of like see where a guy is glancing before play starts or where before an action starts. So you could get a sense kind of of what or a slightly better sense of what his vision is. And, you know, if he's seeing stuff before it happens, that it's a little harder to see that kind of stuff on film. Yeah. And I think the, the other two big things would be um, one, Intel being at games, you can talk to people with a team and get information on prospects. Uh, and I think that that's probably something that's, that's more value that's valued more highly in, in traditional scouting than by draft Twitter types. But uh, still, I think something we'd all acknowledge is pretty important. Uh, and then the other thing that I think there's a huge disparity between uh, live and, and television is um, communication, like the the level to which you can understand or, and see communication when you're watching a game in person versus on TV is a massive, massive disparity. Um, and I do think that that's an important thing. Uh, but I mean, with, with that in mind, should we talk now a bit about bigs? Um, because w- with bigs, I mean, the, I thought of them with strength because for me, strength, tends to be like a bit of a disqualifier for a big if they don't have it, just because I think that your definitely defensive impact is so mitigated. If you can't, um, you know, withhold impact or, or to stand up to, to impact on the interior and, um, and things that we, that we sort of take for granted, like rebounding um, are really, you know, hurt when you're not, when you're not strong enough. Uh, so I think we talked about that in pretty good detail with someone like Jalen Smith in this class, um, where he's just really weak, um, and it presents a lot of issues in, in in ways that I think people don't expect. So it's not just getting beasted in the post. It's you know if you make a rotation on a guard who you know drops his shoulder 
into your chest and you fly backwards because you're incredibly weak. That really is, I think, much more important than being someone who's who's vulnerable to being attacked in the post. Um, but I, I, obviously, I think that, that strength being important for bigs is not a controversial take. But I do think that in the more modern NBA, there are a lot of arguments for what are important traits for a big um so i what are things that you guys look for specifically uh for bigs to fit into today's nba i think in terms of valuing bigs highly at the top of the draft um i think we're both in agreement that bigs have to show some sort of special skill or defensive ability to really be worth that because just with the replaceability of big men in today's nba that they have to stand out in some tangible way and there's plenty of ways guys could do that. I mean, I'll talk about a guy like Jaron Jackson, who lacks that strength component that you talked about, but he was pretty much consensus special prospect because of things like his his incredible defensive awareness and team defense stuff and some of the handling and shooting flashes that he's shown. And 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 two years into the league, Jaron Jackson is just an absolutely money three-point shooter on high volume off the dribble, which is, I don't know if that's an outcome that a lot of us expected, but... It was definitely a possibility he showed in college with his pull-up shooting and handling flashes. And I think one thing that really stands out for bigs for me at the top is just like looking for that perimeter skill as guys get really center-sized. I mean, you have to think about this in conjunction with other skills because um, some bigs, even if they have that perimeter skill, like you, you just mentioned Jalen Smith, who despite that that lack of strength has flash stuff like off movement shooting and some driving ability for his his size which is really rare and impressive stuff but you need that in conjunction with some sort of defense that size because interior defense is really the driver of nba defense being able to protect the rim and stop those highest value attempts which are rim attempts and if you don't have big big size guys who can protect the rim who can protect the rim effectively and that's a pretty big liability. So I say two rim protection is just a thing that you want to look, and that's just not being tall and long and even a, a, a pretty strong guy. Because like even a guy like Isaiah Stewart, who's like a fairly like he's strong, and even though he's not super tall, he's long. So like and he'll be able to like defend guys in the post, but he's not super instinctual as a weak side rim protector, and he doesn't move super well. But in the modern NBA, where help side rim protection is so important. You want to look for these special movement skills and instincts. And that's why a guy like Usman Garuba, um, Real Madrid 2021 draft draft class that we talked about last week, is is such a special defensive prospect because he's he's got this preternatural awareness of plays that are going on behind him and where everything is. And he's got the the movement skills to, to hang with guards and drop coverage and cover ground quickly. So I think m- movement skills... Rim protection is another really important thing to look for when you're looking at really good bigs in the draft. Yeah, I think that um, the one of the uh, I think like before everything else, a big needs to be competent as a team defender, and I would I even argue needs needs to be someone who projects as as a meaningful positive. But the other thing that I look for defensively is viability in multiple different pick and roll coverages because you don't want a guy who's going to be compromising the way that you can uh, approach different teams and that can uh, be dictated by, by the opponent. And then offensively, I think you want not just good decision makers, but they have to be quick decision makers because of the ways that, that bigs are put in position to make decisions in the NBA. It's 
um, you know, catching passes on the roll, or if you are in the post, you're like frequently going to draw a double and you need, you need to be getting passes out before you're in a compromised position. And then the other one that I think is a bit, um, underappreciated still is ball handling where I really do think that that's one of the more valuable uh, traits for a big man in today's NBA, because I mean, one, there's the, there's grab and go ability, but also just when you're functioning as a role man, um, you know, getting, getting the ball on the roll and being able to put it on the ground uh, to, I don't know, maneuver around defenders or whatever it may be uh, is really important. Or, if you are a, a big man who's stretching the floor, which increasingly, I mean, most big men are, you don't just need to be able to hit a spot up three. You need to be able to attack a closeout once, uh, you know, you're, once you're drawing those. So I think that handling is, is certainly uh, even still a, a um, underappreciated skill for big men. I mean, are there, are there any other skills that you guys think are underappreciated when, when examining a big man prospect? I think um, screen setting ability to an extent and and that's kind of in conjunction now with like you just said ball handling ability to point to just bam out of bio because I'm in South Florida so I'm super biased like he you know you could go through every single possession of his on on synergy and he barely handled the ball in college like this wasn't something that he showed the ability to do at Kentucky and it's kind of and that's why it's important to not to say that he was doing this before games and warm-ups or what have you but it's where it's important for you know various teams and coaching staffs to look at a guy and like kind of either run him through drills to see if he could do it or you know are there certain athletic indicators based on his coordination or, or movement ability that kind of indicates that he should be able to do it? Granted, I think I forget who, who said it on Twitter, but someone was saying he, he grew a lot like his senior year of high school. So like a few inches his senior year. So he was handling the ball a lot more in AAU in high school, which I was unaware of, but like it's those kind of things outside of in-game situations or noticing athletic indicators that kind of show you, yeah, this guy has that capability, you know, in a different role once he gets to the, ne- to the next level. Yeah. I think no, I think noting the, the AAU high school point is really important because um, we, we've talked a lot about how considering the pre-college sample while I guess somewhat unintuitive since it's not the most recent thing is really important because roles do change a lot. And in college, you're, you're usually only seeing a guy in one context, like for a concrete example, I know something that Ross talked about, uh, Ross Homan, our, our guest from earlier in the week talked about a lot last year with PJ Washington was that in AAU, he actually showed a lot of shot diversity where he was shooting off the dribble threes. He was shooting uh, really like pretty difficult attempts and was quite good at it. And so people I know had some concerns about PJ and didn't really value shot versatility with him. But when you go back and you look at, in, I mean, in PJ's case, a sample that was three years old, uh, I think there's still a lot of value in it. And then PJ, I think in his NBA debut, what hit six threes or something like that. And everyone's stunned that, that this guy who was kind of boxed in at Kentucky can, uh, can do more, but 
it's it's considering that that sample and maybe that won't always be the case and it's that's a situation where like mitch mentioned it's really important to be able to put guys through your own workout but um i i do think that for amateur analysts who don't have access to team workouts it's very important to consider the pre-college sample because you're seeing a guy in another context where he's he's in a different role or i mean and even for uh before college like uh we were talking about on on that episode with Ross. It's important to see a guy in um in playing for his high school team and playing for his AAU team because I, I know I think Ben brought this up with uh, respect to Reese Beekman that he plays a very different role on Phenom U with a bunch of other superstar prospects as he does on his high school team where he's really the the lead guy. Uh, so I think it's just really important to consider guys in multiple contexts like that. I'll quickly go off Mitch's point on uh, looking for coordination because I think that's uh, another underrated point to look for when you're looking at big man. And I'll point to Jackson Hayes last year who didn't really show any outstanding tangible skills. I mean, he wasn't outstanding handling the basketball or passing or shooting. But what he did show was just freakish outlier coordination for his size. There was one play against Michigan State where he like took the ball the full like a guard and missed the layup. But just the, the way he moves for a guy who's six like legit six eleven is super rare. And Jackson Hayes is another guy who had a growth spurt um I think a senior year of high school. And I think that's just the thing to look for is big men who move in this outlier way because in the spaced NBA moving is just so important and being able to get around the floor effectively and efficiently it's, it seems like at least anecdotally these bigs like you talked about like bam Adebayo, who was always super coordinated even though these flashes of skills weren't there tend to develop in kind of outlier ways and i think we can look at is guys all the time will develop in ways that we don't expect but looking for that baseline of coordination that a lot that most big men don't have because even in the modern game when spacing and shooting and perimeter offense is more emphasized so many of these bigs are still slower and don't have this outlier movement so yeah movement is just a big thing to look for and that coordination can be an indicator of future yeah i mean i think movement's really important with all guys to the point where i i maybe overrate how important it is because i mean i just also find it uh like aesthetically pleasing when a guy is a really um uh like smooth mover i someone like um Charles Matthews last year with Michigan just like found it to be very enjoyable to watch. Um, but I do think it's important because in college, uh, I know we've, we've talked in passing a couple times about Sadiq Bay before uh, Villanova forward. Um, and one of the reasons that I don't like him is that while he is, I think a relatively successful perimeter defender in college uh, because he is very long and strong and has pretty good recovery tools, uh, his movement technique and ability are, are really poor to the point where I don't think that the holding up on the perimeter is going to translate to the NBA. So I do think that movement is something that's really important to scrutinize. I mean, we talked about it as a major swing skill with James Wiseman also, where he's, he's another guy who's had really good recovery tools and has covered to a degree. I mean, not even, not even that well uh, at lower levels, but really the, those short or short area uh, movement shortcomings uh, could be a severe problem for him in the NBA. It could really derail him. Uh, so I think, yeah, movement is something that's really underappreciated and is is one of one of the more uh, important skills that doesn't get talked about all that often. And one thing I wanted to bring up real quickly about your initial point on strength is, 
not to disagree, I don't disagree with, you know, I'll say the, the high end prospects, like a lot of the time you'll see they are either just naturally strong individuals or, you know, they're bigger guy, bigger kids to begin with, but it's important to notice or to point out that they are in fact kids a lot of the time. And even though you're drafting them at 19, 20 years old, you know, you have to ask yourself, are they weak now? And do they have the body that they're just always going to be weaker or are they going to be able to put on size as they get older? Cause you're not just drafting a guy for when he's 20 years old. Ideally you're drafting a guy for well, six, seven years down the road when he's 25 years old, will he have put on the strength that you want from what you envision him, you know, when he's 19, 20 years old, is it, is it an easy kind of transition as he fills out and as he gets older, or is there something to where, you know, I guess like guys like Porzingis, I mean, Porzingis is a little bit of a bad example because he's so tall, but it's like, if guys have the kind of physical frame and body structure where it's going to be harder for them to put on size and muscle because of some type of, you know, whether it be higher hips or, you know, they're so so tall that like it's kind of going to inhibit them in some way, or are they starting out? We'll say, you know, they're these six, nine, 260 pound centers in college do they have the ability to to thin out a little bit and therefore increase their their movement abilities a little bit just by getting in better shape, entering an NBA weight program, etc.? Or are they kind of like always going to be, you know, a little bit on the heavier side, a little bit slower, even if they're seeing things that other guys who are at that point in time in better shape or they're better at moving, but like they're just not going to ever be able to catch up really because they don't have the right body type and they're not going to be able to lose weight effectively. Or even if they do lose weight effectively, they're going to lose some of what made them good at the time in college. Like those are kind of questions you got to balance out when it comes to, you know, evaluating guys' bodies. It's like, where can their body progress to or, and why, or is their body kind of going to stay in the lane that it's in and they're kind of confined to that lane, really. Yeah, I think that's a really, a really good point. That point. Um, I and I tend to, I guess, only really harp on strength with outliers. So, you know, I mean, it, I think it's something worth considering with Trey Young uh, on you know, the low end, and it's something worth considering with Grant Williams on the high end. But I'm not too concerned about someone in the middle of those two. Um, but I do think it's also important to consider how strength works in conjunction with other physical abilities i think it's it's something i've definitely thought of with rj hampton where when he's n- in less traffic um and not contacted uh even off of one foot he can really rise up very quickly and very impressively so it's someone like him i think that if he if he builds up strength and ability to really work through contact that he could be really impressive um in traditional realms of athleticism uh where you he starts to look even more explosive uh and it's i mean i think it's something that that we get we were sort of dancing around with with um when we're talking about initiators too where if you know a guy might be horizontally explosive but if he's bumped off spots on on his drives and 
just like can't get to these spots because of strength. It might not matter all that much that he's horizontally explosive, but if he has a body that that does seem conducive to adding that strength, that um, the returns can really be exponential on that. Well, that point Mitch made about um, guys guys losing weight, I think, is really important because oftentimes we'll talk about fat upside guys, you know, just prospects who are on the pudgier side, and because of that, have an av- have uh, an easier avenue to athletic improvement. Um, I'll, I'll make the point, the example of John Tate Porter uh, now with the Grizzlies, that he was a guy who was who was clearly very gifted as a perimeter oriented big. I mean, even with his his more weight he was a pretty good mover on the perimeter but now that i mean i'm pretty sure from like one from two across two combines he dropped like four or five percent body fat so and that's a serious thing to look at I mean, obviously in his case a large a large uh cause of that could have been his multiple um injuries but guys who are able to drop weight um in re- in relation to the role cause, like because like, like mitch said like a bruising center dropping 30 pounds isn't really going to help them but a guy who works in the perimeter, um, who has maybe more, 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 more baby fat on them, can that's like an avenue for upside for improvement. Should we, um, should we move on to guys that have popped recently, or, or do, does anyone have anything else that they want to well, to address here? I just wanted to make a, a quick point. Yeah, you know, a prime example is Draymond. Quite frankly, like Draymond's, yeah. you know, because he only had to lose a little bit of weight at the, in, it was a different NBA then. So like he was quote unquote, a tweener. He wasn't a three or a four, but like between his length and strength combination just by, and he was able to lose a little bit of weight coming out of college. And so like he lost a little bit of weight, but he was still as strong as any post defender in the NBA. So like his, the skills that, you know, were not necessarily like these outlier skills for a college big, but like he was, you know, one of those traditional productive four-year college guys playing for Izzo. It was that combination of strength being only like six, five, six, six that enabled him to play, you know, a small ball five and change the NBA. But it was because like, I mean, who knows if Golden State saw that particular role once they drafted him, but it was the ability to drop a little bit of weight that enabled some of the things that made him so special was, you know, they didn't they didn't dismiss him because he was a, a fat, undersized four coming out of Michigan State. I'll use that point to quickly springboard onto just talking about small ball fives in general. Cause I feel like after Draymond Green exploded under the scene and is still probably underrated by the mainstream of just how, how great and special he is. Everyone's looking for small ball fives and billing players as small ball fives. But aside from Draymond being able to handle on offense and be very versatile on defense, there's things that small ball fives need small ball fives to actually be viable as small ball fives need to be able to do a lot of things. They have to be able to protect the rim as as a five, as we talked about rim protection being so important. They have to be able to cover multiple spots in defense and be effective offensively. And like I'll make this point about a guy that 
in this 2020 class that a lot of people like as a potential small ball five and have him highly. That's Precious Achua um, out of Memphis. And people love him as a small ball five because he's really toolsy athletic traditionally. He's super fast and explosive and strong for his size, but he's not a very good finisher around the rim. He doesn't protect the rim at a super high level aside from just being incredibly athletic in college. And he's a pretty awful decision maker and shooter. So when you're looking for guys who are potential small ball fives, guys who can actually hold up at the center position in the NBA who are smaller, so we'll say 6'7", six, 6'8", six, that that range, or even 6'6", six, six or smaller, you really need to look for these things like outlier strength and, and rim protection to be able to survive. It, it, it's more than just the baseline that you see with a guy like Draymond Green on the surface to survive as a small ball five. Yeah, so no, I, I tangent, think that's a really valuable point because it's not just – even having outlier strength because I mentioned Grant Williams earlier uh, and he is a a total strength outlier, but just holding up in the post one-on-one is not, is not what matters for a small ball five. You need to be viable as a primary rim protector and Grant uh, for as wonderful as he is, has very limited vertical and uh, is not long. And that, that inhibits him a lot contesting shots at the rim as a help defender. Uh, and so you might think just looking at Grant Williams holding up in the post against Marcus Gasol that he is truly viable at, uh, to play serious minutes as a five. But I think in reality, the limitations as a, as a, a rim protector particularly are pretty damning, even for a guy who, who has what you'd think would be all the tools in terms of intelligence and strength to survive at that position, even as a smaller guy. I think it's important to note, though, not not that it fully you know erases the need to contest shots at the rim, but I think what at times certain undersized fives have shown, and to be biased again and pick out a Miami Heat player, Udonis Haslam, the threat of and even even going someone who actually plays is Marcus Smart and. As much as people hate the charge in the NBA and the amount that it's being called now, if you're a rim protector who can't necessarily contest every shot at the rim, if you're making smart rotations and you're in a position where you're, if not taking a charge, then as long as you're there quicker than the ball handler, like that, the threat of taking the charge at times is enough to even if it's one or two possessions a game, force force a, a driving or attacking player to, to swing a pass somewhere else or mess up their shot attempt because they don't want to take the charge. Like So to an extent, not that it completely erases the need to actually leap and contest shots on a rotation, but there are other ways to still affect shots if a guy is smart enough to do it. And that's also kind of a thing to dive further into like when you're looking at a particular prospect is, is he making those smart rotations like, and just not getting there in time? So is it a timing issue? Is it, he's not seeing it or is he going for the block every time, which is, you know, setting up other issues in defensive rebounding or what have you like. So there are like some mitigating circumstances to, you know, if you are playing a smaller guy as your center at times, you know, is he making those correct plays, which, you know, you're stealing valuable minutes then by having Grant as a five or 
or for other teams, you know, playing a smaller guy there for those few uh, PJ Tucker, like PJ Tucker is not, you know, altering shots at the rim when he's rotating, but is he sliding in position and making it more difficult for those handful of possessions, like moving forward for Houston, if he could steal five, six minutes a night or, you know, doubling that if they really want to keep him at the, at the five, like, that's an important thing also to add to certain guys. Like if there is a viable option for them playing that position for X amount of time in a game. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't, I hadn't considered the charge drawing aspect before, but that is a, I think a really valid counter argument. Um, I think just one last thing before we move on, I just to address with the small ball five thing is that I think a, a lot of people do think that going small means, um, switching which means that help defense is no longer a thing and that's not the case you're still you're still if you're the center probably in most cases the last line of defense uh as a help defender and so that's especially relevant with someone like like precious who ben mentioned that precious is is not i think a a brilliant team defender not not the most intelligent player uh so i guess i think some people would think that just going to a switching scheme is going to be a workaround to that but I think that that's really not the case, even even when you're going small at that position and are doing a lot of switching. Once again, the Prep to Pro NBA Draft podcast is sponsored by LinkedIn Jobs. Find the right person for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and get the first $50 off. Just visit linkedin.com slash team. Again, that's linkedin.com slash team to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. Um, so Ben, for guys that have popped recently, do you want to, you want to start with one of yours? Yeah, I'll start with a guy who we've already briefly mentioned and that's RJ Hampton. So I've been catching up on some NBL tape recently quickly. Just want to praise the NBL for being such a fantastic product. I mean, availability of games for, for anyone who wants to watch on, on Facebook. Um, there's like good quality basketball. I'm going from watching, random high school games and mid-major college to watching the NBL is night and day. But I'll go back to RJ Hampton, who I think a lot of people maybe are, I wouldn't say are forgetting about, but are kind of under considering because people aren't as attentive to the NBL. And we'll talk about improvement a lot. And Hampton, someone who's made tangible improvements from the first, the first game he played in Australia or New Zealand, I guess, with the breakers to the last one. I mean, he tangibly improved a lot and, mostly on the offensive end. Defensively, he's still kind of a mess. Um, really, as Max alluded to earlier with, with his offensive and his finishing, he's really, really weak in general, and that hurts him a lot. And he's not super instinctual as a team defender. But offensively, especially with his passing, I mean, as as the season went on, RJ Hampton improved so much as a decision maker, even making, even flashing quite a few complex reads, skip to the weak corner. I think the game I watched uh, today against, I think it was Adelaide, where he had back-to-back-to-back pick-and-roll possessions where he was doubled or hedged and made two quick passes to the roll and then one to the wing, all immediate decisions. He had a couple tough skips to the corner in that game. And just that passing growth in such a short time is really important for RJ Hampton's projection as either probably not an initiator or some sort of combo guard. And even like, even though he's very weak and struggles to explode in the half court to finish, he's pretty technically great as a slasher. I mean, he, he, he's pretty bursty in the half court. He can get downhill and he gets really low and he has long strides to get around defenders and get to the rim. So 
Archer Hampton is a guy who's improving a lot, is kind of a guy I want to bet on to keep developing. And with the skills he's already shown at his size, a guy who I feel like can improve quite a bit. Yeah, RJ is a guy who's also risen a lot for me during uh, during the NBL season. I did not like him coming to the year, uh, but just pretty quickly, I think, improved a lot as a decision maker. Um, and I think just looked a lot better athletically to me in the NBL than he did in high school, where he really he has a, an impressive first step and his strides are, are really pretty to watch and he gets very low. It's just an, like an impressive slashing prospect. And like I mentioned, I think that the – the potential vertically is is pretty pretty interesting as well. Um, I re- I think he's really bad defensively, and I I just don't know what level the shots at, and it's probably not at a good enough level. Um, but nonetheless, I find him to be a, a pretty good prospect, and honestly, I think turning into quite the value in this class. Whereas it seems like Anthony Edwards is really establishing himself himself as the number one overall pick. Uh, in this year's class. And I, I do have Ant number one and, and like him a lot relative to other people. But oh, I'm with RJ, you. You're with me? Oh, yeah, I'm with you on Ant. Yeah. So, uh, But I think that we're we're in the minority on that. But RJ Hampton, it seems like he's now trending toward late lottery. And what that's going to be is a much cheaper contract for a guy who I think role-wise um, does project somewhat similarly and so just as I think of value play as opposed to someone like Anthony Edwards in this class, RJ Hampton is turning into a really interesting guy. Um, and he's he's just someone I'm excited to go, I think, probably try to watch the rest of his games on because he, uh, due to injury like LaMelo Ball, didn't end up finishing the NBL season. But um, yeah, I think he's a, he, he's a really good prospect uh, and someone that's pleasantly surprised me in a year of guys that were really disappointing. I don't know, Mitch, do you, do you have a, an RJ take? No, I'll, I'll be honest. Um, after both him and LaMelo went down for periods of time, I kind of took the exit ramp, if you will, in terms yeah, of dedic- dedicating too much time to watching their film um, and focusing a little more on guys who are continuing to play. But now that we have a lot more time available to us, might yeah. get back into deeper dives on, on both of them, actually. Because, like, with – I mean, I don't want to go on a whole Lamelo tangent, but even he was a guy who, you know, after his injury, I kind of was like, all right, I can take a break from watching him now and not paying too much attention and focusing on guys who were actually going to play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a totally valid approach. Um, so I'll I'll get back to our roots again as the prep to pro NBA draft podcast, <laughs> and I will bring up Chet Holmgren, who is in the high school class of. Is he 2022 or 2021? He's 21. Well, he's the point is he he's quite far away from the NBA. But I think Chet is a fascinating prospect because if you know of Chet Holmgren, you probably know of him as one of those guys that gets like the mixtapes where he's labeled as the next KD because he's seven foot, can dribble, and takes shots. Um, but that's not what I find interesting about Chet. It's his rim protection, which is absurdly special. Um, he has great recognition, but he is the most like skilled rim protector prospect I've ever seen. The way he positions himself at the rim, the angles that he takes to shut off uh, attempts, and his verticality. He is the most disciplined um, verticality guy from a prospect that I've ever seen. It is incredible to watch. And um, 
I think people probably assume that this is what all seven footers look like in high school. And that is very much not the case. Chet is a supremely skilled uh, defensive player. And it is incredible to watch because on top of that, he's seven one or whatever he is uh, and pretty long. And it just, the shot blocking at the, at the high school level from him is ridiculous. So I don't know the extent to which that will translate to a higher level because he is so impossibly skinny. And I think you saw that a bit in the game that uh, he he played against Sierra Canyon with Minnehaha, where uh, if you really get into his chest, he, he will just fly backwards. And he sometimes still has the length at this level to force a miss, but dealing with with uh, I think even stronger guys and um, guys who have, who have more length and are just more intelligent going about this, it hit the rim protection might not translate, but at the level that he's currently playing, the rim protection is totally ridiculous. Um, and then, I mean, he does do interesting offensive things too. He, he takes shots and he's, he's a pretty impressive ball handler, even in traffic. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Chet Holmgren, just a fascinating prospect to me. Yeah, and he's a guy, I mean, you pretty much touched on everything there. I think just that that actual functional ball handling is something that really surprised me. I mean, it, it's more than just making a crossover in the open court like you'll see on Ball is Life mixtapes. I mean, he can legitimately, like, attack a closeout and get to his spot on offense. And, yeah, I, I don't – I really have not enough of a conception of that class to know how I'm going to rank him. Um, that's a bridge we'll cross when we get there. But yeah, I mean, he's like Max said, a totally fascinating prospect. With just, just trying to like see the extent to which you can, to which you can succeed without any strength. Because, I mean, it's possible that he, I mean, probably necessary that he develops some sort of strength. But how, like, how how far can you get like this? I mean, being this real thin and just being so incredibly talented at what he does. But I think a couple of the things. Max brought up was important in terms of finding finding things from a movement standpoint or a technique standpoint that like truly are outlier with certain guys like from from an, taking certain angles and going vertical that consistently and that and being that discipline over and over and over like that's an outlier thing I mean clearly because of the numbers that he's putting up block numbers that he's putting up are that special, but it's like how he's going about doing it in terms of his coordination and his movement and the ground coverage. If he's not just like standing there being tall, like he's not Hashim to beat, like he's not just being seven, three and enormous in one spot where if he's moving across the lane, like despite the lack of strength and real, muscle on his body if he's still moving explosively laterally and he's taking you know or he's timing blocks up like to such an incredible level like those are the kind of things where if those things are showing up now it's not like he's really going to get like worse timing blocks as he gets older like those things should ideally if he goes to the right school and even or if well i assume the one and done thing is after he's already in school for a year. Um, it dep- if he's, because uh, we we're not sure which class he is. I can check quickly which class he is. He's either the last class that is expected to be subject to one and done, or the first one that's not. Uh, yeah, high school twenty twenty one. So he is the last class that is expected to be subject to one and done. 
Got it. All right. So like if he, yeah, if he goes to a place where, you know, he's going to be allowed, going to be allowed to challenge shots at the rim, like, you know, or, or I should say he's not going to be, you know, forced to just be in the middle of a, of the lane the whole time. So you could actually see if there's a progression or a continued, um, I'll say upwards linear progression of the skills that he already showed. Like those are the outlier things from a rim protector that like, those are the special things like to notice and look for and keep track of more so than just like if his blocks numbers decrease, like, Mm -hmm. Can we start the petition to get Chet to Texas Tech? If, yeah. <laughs> get him that strength and conditioning program. Get him that strength and conditioning program. Just make him like it. Just um, imagine like a two hundred thirty pound Chet with the same. Yeah, like, man. I, I mean, just like he's just Rudy, like, he's Rudy, he's Rudy Gobert. Then, like, um, but see that that's an important thing. Like where his body, I think, I don't think his hips are quite as high as Porzingis, but like it could be because he's so tall at like such a young age, like he he's obviously super coordinated and that shows up on offense a lot as well, or probably more so on offense, his coordination like really stands out, but because of his body type, like because he's so narrow and so skinny, like how it, it, I mean, it's probably up to NBA team doctors and training staffs more so than, any what any of us could actually tell at this point but like how easy they feel they can put weight on his body without you know over um burning his his frame and making it more difficult moving forward or putting him at risk of injury by having him gain too much weight and so like that's an important thing like teams are gonna have to figure out with him and his his body type yeah, it's a great point, and I think that I, mean, I don't want to speculate on it on it too much because I just I don't feel like I have the expertise to say so. He, his frame doesn't really look to the eye like one that would be able to add weight like that, which is disappointing. And I think one of the reasons that we'll probably see people a bit lower on Chet than than um, recruiting services have him at the moment. But nonetheless, like a really just fascinating prospect, someone I'd recommend watching if you if you have the time or the interest. Um, Ben, do you want to do your other one or should I do my other one? Sure. I can do my other one. And we'll start with a couple guys who we're not going to want to pronounce, but we will anyway. Um, mine is Nikos, uh, Rogovopoulos plays for, played for Greece in the FIBA U tournaments. I think U18 and U19. Um, not someone I've seen a lot of, but someone who really stands out as a six, eight guy who shoots off the dribble, shoots off movement and has shown some really high level passing flashes with, you know, passes off the dribble with both hands um, off the live dribble, some pretty complex reads. But the things with him, I mean, he's pretty painfully slow on both ends. He doesn't really get into the paint uh, with a quick first step, and his handle's not spectacular. And on defense, he's kind of a mess being being not a great mover, and he's not super instinctual either. But just as a young guy, I think he's 18 at this point. Um, I'm, I can double-check that, but... Someone young um, at six foot eight who's got legitimate shoot, shooting versatility and who's a pretty and has shown quite a few passing flashes. I mean, that's an interesting guy to track, nonetheless, in a pretty deep international class. Yeah, not not someone I've seen. I don't know, Mitch. Have you seen him at all? I honestly have not. My my international scouting, I'll say, time spent is fairly limited. So getting into the 
I'll say the deeper weeds of the international class is not something I've had the time to get into yet. Yeah, and no, he that... turned eighteen on in like almost uh, the end of June, so he's pretty young. Okay, yeah, I mean that's that's not something I've I've done much of either. But I'll I'll get to uh, my other guy, another difficult name, uh, Sandro Mamukelishvili. Uh, he is a combo big at uh, Seton Hall. Um, and just pretty impressive offensively. Um, he makes some impressive decisions as a passer and uh, has a pretty nice stroke. Probably needs, I think, needs to more consistently hold the follow through. But otherwise, it, it, it does look pretty nice. Um, and then defensively, don't have a great feel for him other than there were a few moments of pretty, pretty surprisingly nice movement. Um, I believe he did just declare for the draft this year. Yeah. Remains to be seen if he'll if he'll stay in the class. But as of right now, he is testing the waters. Um, probably not even a guy I don't think that would fit into my top 100 at the moment. But uh, I think a real prospect nonetheless, pretty interesting offensively and someone that I do want to dig into a bit more. I don't know if you, if you guys have, have any takes on Sandro Mamukelishvili. Your takes are my takes too. <laughs> I do not want to embarrass myself trying to pronounce his name, so we'll go with I don't have any Sandro takes outside of what Max said. Yeah, just being that having that offensive skill that height is, as we've talked about before, intriguing in, in some sense. So somebody to keep an eye on nonetheless. Yeah. Uh Mitch, are there are there any guys you want to bring up? Um I don't think we didn't we didn't plan for any, but if, if there's anyone that you absolutely feel the need to to mention, now's the time. Um, I'll bring up a couple of guys, one of whom I brought up, I tweeted about earlier in the season, but then he got hurt, unfortunately. And that's uh, DeAndre Williams on Evansville. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the more, actually one of the two or three most interesting synergy profiles like this season was an incredibly efficient on the offensive end, like scoring, you know, almost at will for the most part. And I'll, I'll keep it concise, but like just at about six, eight, 200 pounds, like he's really skinny, but he showed great body control on drive to the rim, like being able to avoid contact combined with touch. He was passing out of double teams in the post, like seeing the pass before he even caught the ball, like knew where he was going with it. So he was very unselfish. I think, Granted, he's like super old. I think as a sophomore, he's like 23 already as a sophomore yeah. or something like that. But he just he showed an offensive versatility and proficiency that I thought was super interesting. Um I think like if if I'm him, I just I go pro. I don't know why he would continue to wait around when he is like 23 or 24. Um and then Oscar Tashiwe on West Virginia, he was super exciting to watch on all you know the AU high school like all-star games and stuff last year like really advanced physically and he's the kind of guy who has more room to grow from a skills perspective like he has that kind of coordination and also like I'll say the arc for arc for improvement because I believe he got to basketball pretty late compared to other prospects Late, yeah, later in life than other prospects he's a he's a late adopter of basketball yeah and and guys and i think it was 
Mike Gribanov, who responded to one of my tweets about him a few weeks ago, like guys at his size don't move with that kind of speed mm-hmm. and quickness. Like it's pretty rare. And he has great body control and hands, like catching lobs. And he, he's a guy who I think is, I think certain boards have him being drafted like late first, early second round, like anywhere from like, I'll say 30 to 45. From what I've seen, if he gets drafted at all, if he goes pro at all, but like he's a guy I think he has the kind of body and skill set that he he's become a little, um, not not necessarily underrated, but like he's just not getting talked about enough from what he was preseason. I think. Yeah, I'll definitely agree that Oscar is being underrated. I think he absolutely is being underrated. And I know Max and I are fans. I, I, I had him in the first on my most recent board. And I mean, people have talked about how he disappointed and like in some ways, yes, but I think um in a lot of ways he was kind of what we expected. It's just this like like you said, an incredible mover for this massive human as he is. I mean he, he I mean his the passing and the decision making was pretty poor this year. That was really the big kind of thing that disappointed and obviously the shot didn't fall but guys with that that rare movement and just like he did flash some handling at times and there were there were certain games when he passed the ball well but not but not so much and I, one more knock on Oscar is that he's he's older I think he's already is he already 20 I mean Oscar I know is I think he was old. 20 like maybe early in the season he's he's very old for the class yes he is 20 uh yes he turned 20 in November so very old for the class that's definitely a knock, but yeah, Oscar's a guy who I, I definitely will agree um, is being under-discussed. And I'll let Max touch on DeAndre Williams, because, you know. Yeah, I mean, while we're on Oscar, I still like Oscar a lot, too. Really an outlier mover, both in a straight line, just as, as a guy who, who runs the floor, covers ground. Like, some of the sequences, at least in high school, were Giannis-esque. Um, where it would be like two steps from three-point. And it's a shorter three-point line, but two steps from three-point line to a dunk. Um, I was just really disappointed with how below the rim he played this year on both ends. Uh, nonetheless, still a guy, yeah, I have him in the top 30. Um, I, I think a more compelling big man proposition than really any of the other freshmen except for Onyeka. Uh, so yeah, I still I still like Oscar a fair amount. Uh, DeAndre Williams, I've only seen half a game on, so I don't want to give too strong of a take on. I do feel like he's a little bit of one of those like aggressively draft Twitter guys where the stat profile is really, really impressive. But when you watch him, I, to me at least, it doesn't hold up in the very small sample I've seen where his handle is really bad and the shot is really slow. I know it went in at a high percentage and his free throw percentage is really good. Uh, and then his body is so bad for a guy who really is ancient uh, at this point. So he was someone that that early in the season, I remember his stat profile just popped like to an extent that, th- you know, I thought, wow, this is a guy who's really maybe quite high up in this class. Um, but watching him, the eye test didn't hold up for me in a very, very small sample, but he's definitely someone I'll give another uh, chance to, because like Mitch mentioned, I mean, his stat profile is ridiculous. One thing I want to say, yeah, to bring up on, or piggyback on the two points you made, the thing with Oscar, like, and this is where, you know, after you, for, for me personally, anyways, after getting into, like, like you said, you know, he wasn't playing above the rim enough on either end. It's, 
Okay, so you make that point, and now I'm going to have to go back and come up with the answer as to why, you know, these certain things, like, didn't transpire. Because a lot of – and especially with college bigs, it's interesting where, like, so many of these guards, even for teams that have good guard play, like, you know, he's not a guy who, for the most part, you want, you know, getting entry passes from the wing on the post and, like, backing a guy down or whatever. So it's like if he's in pick and roll situations, is he setting good screens or is he being lazy on screens and therefore, you know, he's not freeing up the guard to get into the lane and cause the kind of chain reaction that you you want in the situations where if he's not if he's not catching any lobs for dunks, like how much of that is on him not creating the kind of chain reaction that needs to take place for him to get that pass are his guards bad at throwing that pass like how much you know it's kind of like not to say that he's perfectly not at fault but it's in in diving into the film like once you're trying to find the final placement for him on your big board or on anybody's big board it's like to what extent are those things that like you were hoping to see didn't happen because of X, Y, or Z, or is it something where like that initial opinion you had based on the high school and AAU sample was that kind of like, he's just bigger and more athletic than everybody else. So he was getting those chances because at the time, like he was physically superior. So it's kind of getting into those nuances when you don't see what you were hoping to see from a guy. Yeah. I think that's important context to consider. I mean, the specific case of Oscar, my counter would be that I think that his his block percentage and uh, steal percentage also think underwhelmed by a fair amount at West Virginia too, and um, and I don't think that was a function of being uh, a lacking uh, thinker of the game because he does make impressive plays where he'll like he'll shut off drives and and make like multiple rotations on one play and it's it's very impressive from a from a smart standpoint but he just doesn't get he doesn't really get off the ground like that in the way that you'd hope. And I don't, I don't think that he was really freaky vertically uh, in high school either. It was much more the, the movement uh, aspect of him that physically that was so impressive. I mean, and to, to end on a positive with him, because he is a guy that I really enjoy and think is an underrated prospect. uh, He is a really, really good rebounder in a way that I, I think matters a bit because he is so strong. And despite being six, nine, I think he's a seven, four wingspan, um, and so he he gets not just uh, cleans up easy rebounds, but he is a dominant contested rebound guy. And I think that that probably is providing a lot more value than a, a guy who traditionally just racks up uh, rebounds. And I do think that that some of it is is pretty translatable. Oh yeah, he just outworks guys and out muscles guys a yeah. lot. And to an extent, that is also a huge positive in his direction. Is that his energy, like his energy level, is always going that motor is yeah elite motor guy yeah important quality to have for sure and and he's probably another example of the point we talked about before where could he stand to even lose a little bit of weight i mean he's a cinder block like he's yeah he's not like fat by any means so like but has he gained too much size at this point where he's better off getting back to a lighter, you know, 235, 240, because he's probably close to like 250, 255 right now. Is he carrying around too much weight where maybe he gets a little bit more vertical pop 
losing a little bit of weight and being a little lighter because he's not necessarily going to lose a lot of strength if he gets back to that level of where he was probably around, you know, last spring around the, the all-star circuit um, when he was practicing for McDonald's and Nike and all that, where he was getting pretty high up. Yeah, no, that's something that we've talked about with Isaac Okoro before, where he was really impressive vertically in high school and AAU. And this year, I think still still pretty solid, but but a lot less impressive. And he he definitely added muscle uh, upon arrival to Auburn. So it's something I think that's, I mean, the sort of thing that we've been touching on a lot, I think, is that tracing how guy tracing a development arc is something that doesn't really happen if you just binge film at the end of the season. It's something that's really important to do over a season, over multiple seasons, uh, and it's really like a an integral portion of the uh, the scouting process. Yeah, and and seeing how a guy and we you touched on this before, but like. And you touch on it with Isaac Okoro possessions earlier in this conversation, but like a guy's role will change, could change throughout the year based on different circumstances. And so, you know, you say Isaac got put on the ball a little bit more, you know, you got to kind of answer for, you know, did that weight gain inhibit certain things that he otherwise could have done because he was a little bit slower, um, because of the added weight. So when he finally, you know, got more on ball opportunities, it wasn't showing as much because he was carrying too much weight to be able to. And so, you know, those mitigating factors or even projecting forward the opportunity cost of, you know, like 10 added pounds really made him that much slower on a first step. Like when he was on the ball, like those kind of questions to ask about weight gain or role change, like, like that was the thing that made it that much harder for him. Like really like why, you know what I mean? For, mm-hmm. for any prospect, but uh, Isaac was the example in that scenario. I think considering role is a good place to end. Cause ultimately, I mean, the draft is a projection game. No college role is going to translate one-to-one to the NBA. I mean, even if, uh, even if a guy like Trey young is a primary at Oklahoma and he's a high usage primary in Atlanta, there's going to be some differences. And just when you're watching guys thinking about the type of role that they're going to occupy at the pro level is really one of the most, if not the most important thing to consider, because just seeing how this guy is going to function on an NBA roster, how he's going to add value, how he's going to scale with other players and be able to impact the ball with impact offense and defense with or without usage. Yeah. I mean, if I could just make one final point on that, that I think that a lot, a lot of scouting, you know, you'll hear people say, rattle off a bunch of tools and skills that a guy might have. And and I think that tends to happen more with, with like guys who are quote unquote athletic, who are not necessarily all that good at basketball. Um, But I think it's important to remember that that's not how basketball is played. It's not by, it's not played by lining up skills. They do have to fit into a role somehow. Um, I mean, we could do an entire podcast on like, you know, RJ Barrett's role last year. Like, uh, that was, I think, a very important part of his projection and why a lot of people in, in our circles were were lower on him. But it's, I think it's essential to remember that these are skills that have to fit into a role, players that have to fit into a role, and that's that's a part of projection that, I mean, for, first of all, 
that varies on a team by team basis. And it's why I think like the general notion of a, a single big board is, is probably not the best way to think about this. But um, it's a, I think it's just the, one of the more important things to keep in mind that you're not you're not just watching a guy and taking note of what he does right now and, and listing it off. You are projecting into something in the future. Yeah, so I guess um, unless you guys have any final points that you you want to add, we can uh, we can sign off from this one. Uh, Mish, thanks so much for for coming on. This was this was a fun episode. Uh, I think a, a bit uh, divergent from what we normally do, but but a lot of fun nonetheless. Um, is there is there anything you want to plug? Um, just my recent post on the Stepian about. The common viewing the combination of passing and ball handling for for lead guard initiators. Um, hopefully, getting some more stuff out on the step in over the next few weeks as we, you know, lock down and quarantine. And but yeah, this was a lot of fun. I appreciate you guys having me on. Yes, we'll definitely be on the lookout for that piece. Um, you can follow Mitch on Twitter at Mitch underscore Libanoff. You can follow me at Ben underscore Pfeiffer underscore. Follow Max at Max A. Carlin. Follow the pod at prep number two pro pod. Um, uh, don't forget to like, uh, rate, leave nice reviews. We're on Apple, Google, Stitcher, all the above. And I think that's it. That's all we got for you. Stay safe out there. Um, keep watching film and have a nice day.